Welcome to the Mothers on the Frontline podcast and our special series, Between Friends. Hello, this is Tammy. And this is Dion. And this is Angela. We are the founders of Mothers on the Frontline. Children's mental health is a social justice issue, both in how children with mental illness and their families are treated and in how structural violence adversely affects the mental well-being of children. The motherhood of children with mental health conditions has been marginalized and stigmatized in ways that are deeply connected with structural and systemic racism, misogyny, patriarchy, and colonialism. This context silences the lived experiences of mothers, and it degrades our essential knowledge about our children and their needs. This silencing both harms our well-being as mothers, and it prevents our ability to adequately advocate for our children. In this new series, Conversations Between Friends, we will discuss and name what often remains invisible, hidden, or unspoken. Within this intentional space of friendship and care, we will pursue our vision of a world in which mental health is destigmatized, respected, and prioritized as an integral part of the overall health of individuals, families, and communities. Before we begin, please realize that we are three mothers at home with our children with mental health conditions. You might hear children, meltdowns, ticks from Tourette's, and other background noises. This is just the lives we live, so carry on. So, today we're going to discuss grief, tears, and the privilege of not paying attention. Families and communities are grieving right now. We are grieving the deaths of over 100,000 Americans to COVID-19, which has disproportionately affected black and brown communities. We are grieving ongoing and countless losses of African-American women, men, and non-binary folk, children to elders, to institutional racism, particularly by the very structures that should be protecting them, including the police. Many parents are grieving the loss of the veneer of safety they once felt for themselves and their black and brown children in the community and even in their very homes. Yeah, this is, wow, this is Dion speaking. And, and, and this moment, as you know, the two of you know, because we talk a lot, um, has been overwhelming um, for me. And, and, and grief and all of the emotions that come with grief have, have been, you know, we've been in this constant cycle in my family and I have been in this constant cycle of anger, despair, hope, uh, anger, despair, hope. And, and, you know, I look to, and I have looked to the two of you. Um, because you are my mothers and my sisters and my allies in this fight for children's mental health justice. Um, and talking about particularly what's going on with my own little one right now. Um, but also I find myself wanting to talk to you about just the racial dynamics of this, like in this moment and in this group, I'm the only African American member of this group. And you two are the only two white people that I can have seriously honest conversations with. 
and ask this question that I know so many of us, my mother's wondering it, um, my friends, I have family members are wondering it. And how does and what does this moment do or how does it speak to you as not only an American, not only as a mother or mothers of children with mental health challenges, but as white people and particularly white women? Yeah, there's just so much going on right now. And as a white woman, I'm so worried about misstepping and doing more harm than good and, and being hurtful. And I think for me, that awareness and that concern comes from my own experience as a widow and what grief is like as a widow and how you're treated by others, particularly in the early days. Uh, my, my husband, Sujeev, died in December 2015. And the first thing is people just distance themselves from you. In fact, there are some people who just never come back into my life because I think I'm just too hard for them to deal with. Just to see my presence um, makes them realize their own loss or their fear of possible losses. And I I sometimes wonder to what extent white silence is similar to that in these moments. And I also know something I experienced a lot in those moments, and it makes me fearful about how am I responding to people who have every reason right now to be utterly angry and afraid and for, because of what's going on, and how can I be helpful? Because I know people maybe meant well, but they said things that were very hurtful. Like, I can't imagine what it's like to be you. And, no, you can't, but you could be with me. You mm -hmm. could hold my hand while I cry, you know? Um, so people would, this is something I think a lot of our audience can relate to, too, um, that it's not just about being a widow and with my son's health conditions, you know, when you talk to other parents and your child has maybe bipolar or Tourette's or something and you're describing, you know, what they're going through, you know, when you've been locking knives and, and pills up because, you know, your 10 year old is, has suicidal ideation. Um, and then you get comments like, yeah, I have a moody teenager too. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, it hurts <laughs> and you're angry and you feel like you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I, I don't want to, as a white person, do that to my black friends right now. So that's this, where I'm at. Yeah, go I, ahead. Go no, ahead, Angela. Yeah, I'll, uh, okay. Um, I, you know, I, I've heard, I've heard a lot of that from my other white female friends in particular. A lot of people have come to me and said, what can I do? Or I'm afraid to, to speak up right now because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. And I don't feel like I necessarily have a place to say it. And, and that's from the people I know who are pretty aware or are becoming aware of their privilege in this society. Um, there's also obviously the other side of it, um, which is the sort of clueless uh, people and I don't really want to focus on them right at this moment. Um, 
and I'll come back to me. For me, because I am the white mother of a black son and a white daughter, a lot of times I feel like I'm walking the the line on both sides of whiteness, you know, and blackness. Although I'm not black and I claim, <laughs> I do not claim that in any way, being the mother of a black son gives you a perspective in and 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 eyes into things that you were told did not exist. Mm. You have been told your whole life as a white person that these things aren't really real, that that black folks are making it up, that they're too sensitive, that the police are good and that they must be doing something to deserve this. And any of the mythologies and the stereotypes that you've heard, that's what I got growing up. That's what, you know, we get from society. That's what I still hear from so many white friends and our family. And I, and sometimes it really is, a, it, it is really a tightrope for me to walk between those two because I also feel like I need to be a voice to the white people in my life because I have I have a credibility that a black person coming in and saying these things doesn't have with them. It mm -hmm. that's not fair, but I feel like I have to use this moment to reach as many people on the white side of this as I possibly can because they don't understand. And many want to understand. So that's where I'm feeling right now. You all said something, you hit on something, and this is part of like background conversations. Um, but also, Tammy, you said something that, that really struck with me or stuck with me right at this second when you talked about being, uh, you know, the moments after Sajiv died and the discomfort people had with sitting with your pain. And it made me think about this because, you know, so much, I, I, I am in pain right now. And yeah. so many people I know are in pain. And it's, it's, you know, grief is not just a, a, you know, intellectual or psychological thing. It's physical. I, I'm feeling it in my body and I'm wearing it. And if you're around me, you are seeing the visible effects of my pain. And so as you were talking, I was thinking about that because people have a react differently, at least from my perspective, to black women's pain and my showing my pain, right? Than white women yeah. and white women's emotions. And so I don't know if this is something, because I've always thought that like, I and you all know me, I'm not a crier and that is because it's been entrenched in me right to not only be resilient not to cry suck it up i'll give you you know there's this is not anything important to cry about or my emotions are manipulative or you know this is ugly and nobody wants to see that kind of ugly in front of them and you know on friday i cried in front of my husband and he realized in a 11 year relationship 
this is the first time he actually saw me cry. And it's not the first time I've been sad. It's just the first time that I've released that emotion in front of other people. Um, other than yeah. my mother. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I know you said something really interesting, Dion, about how people assume as a black woman, your emotionality is manipulative. And it just was so ironic to hear you say that because one of the things we've been talking about, us three have been talking about lately in response to all of the white women calling police on black bodies, right, is the power of white women's tears and how they're weaponized. And um, it really got me thinking about, as a white woman, how I was raised to have a certain kind of emotionality. And honestly, without showing a certain kind of emotionality, I would have been treated as though something was wrong with me. Mm. So it's sort of an interesting thing. Um, there's a gendered component to it. You learn as – I can speak about my experience, but I've seen this in other – families and friends as well. It seems like as a little white girl, you learn this kind of emotionality that gives you a power that you might not otherwise have as the female voice in the conversation. So for instance, we're raised to be little girls who wrap our daddies around our little finger and bat our eyelashes and, and get the attention that we want. Um, and then I think that teaches us a certain way of being manipulative with our emotions. We see if a woman or a girl isn't the right kind of emotional, enough emotional at the right time, then we're seen as cold, right? And I think that's really particular important. to white women. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, but at the same time, we see in the news all the time in social media today, white women feigning tears, feigning fear, Right. And calling the police, um, using that knowing how powerful it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, and again, we don't get like a class in this. <laughs> Nobody mm -hmm. is specifically pulling us aside and saying, you do this and you do that, but we learn it. And you both know I'm a crier. <laughs> I have always been that way. And, and I don't know if in you know if it's a product of my whiteness specifically or just that i'm a very emotional person and if i feel safe i'll cry in front of you if i don't feel safe i'm i'm not going to do that probably hopefully um but i do know that there is a power in my white femininity and i know yeah. that that i am going to be protected where dion is not going to be protected in the same situation where i'm going to be seen as safe where she's not going to be seen as safe and i know there are spaces that i can walk through where nobody's going to do anything to me because the, my, my whiteness and that my femaleness protects me because we know that let, you know, let, 
I will use the experience of walking with my son in Harlem. Mm. Um, he was he was living in Harlem. I I went to help him, you know, secure his apartment, and we were walking around different neighbor, you know, different streets and neighborhoods, and you know, getting a feel for where he was living. And I was one of very few white people in in, in the area we were at. And there was a heavy police presence practically on every corner that we passed. There were New York City police. I did not fear for myself. I feared for my son. When I saw those cops, I, I, I knew I'm going to be fine, but it terrified me for him. And there are, there are situations like that, that for me, crystallize the protection that my skin provides. And if I were to turn on the waterworks in front of a cop, they, they, they're, you know, we are, they're taught men, you know, white men are taught that they have to defend white women's honor. And that is at the heart of so many lynchings. Um, you know, you, you even saw that reflected in um, that Liam Neeson incident where he was talking about how, you know, one of his friends, female friends told him he had been, she had been raped by a black man and he wanted to go out and find any black man, you know, to beat oh, yeah. the hell out of instead of like, I, I'm sure he knows women who have been raped by white men. But the reaction is never, I'm going to go find the nearest white man and beat the shit out of him. And that was, an, that was another moment. And I was just like, man, this is twisted. You know, and so you go ahead. In this moment, and I, I, I've never really thought about it in this moment. And I, I have this question with you cry. So when you're crying, you have the expectation of, do you have the expectation and also the experience that your tears bring protection, that people react to your tears with what's going on and how can I solve the problem? Because that's, I'm sort of hearing this and I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, grow, growing up, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't cry in public. <laughs> uh, that's one thing where I was definitely, you know, for me anyways, that's super uncomfortable. And, and right. for me, I need to feel safe um, in order to really reveal that vulnerability. For me, crying is very vulnerable, um, at least as an adult. When I was younger, yeah. you know, less so. One of the things I would want to distinguish is the genuine express, expression of emotion, mm -hmm. which yeah. I think is good for all human beings to do all the yeah. time. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's healthy. Versus the performativity of emotion, which is something I think we do learn as white girls. And, and like I said, yeah. until we started talking about it, um, I don't know that I ever really thought about it before, how it's learned and how what it looks like. As you said, no one takes us aside and gives us a class on it, but you somehow learn that power. And um, one of the things that made me think about as well is, you know, when um, 
I'm sometimes expressing sadness. One of the things that friends will do, you know, or people will do that will sometimes bother me that I notice white people do more. And again, I don't, and particularly white women, I guess. And I wonder if that's part of this performativity that we feel, but this kind of um, whatever you're sad about, I'm going to make it about me now mm. and tell you how I have a problem too. And yeah. and what really gets me when it really galls me is when it's not even their problem. They're borrowing it from someone else they know. Like, yeah. so again, as a mother of a child with a disability, that happens a lot. I have, well, yeah, I have a friend who has a child with that disability and this is their experience and they're crying, telling me this. And I have to end up comforting them. Mm -hmm about yeah. their friend's situation that they're not even part of. That is it. it and and so I'm, is that whiteness? Because that seems like whiteness no, to me. Go ahead, Dia. Experience. <laughs> this is where when we talk about performative allyship and, and, and making it about you in these sort of ally spaces, right? So I have had this experience so many times, particularly, in, you know, um, at work and that's like the diversity workshops and everything um when you're at work are a whole nother ball of just mess because that's where typically i have experienced this where you know you're asked to share your experience and then <laughs> you know you're going through and and i share something and i i know that i'm probably not um in a minority in this, but what I've learned as a self-protective way as a black person in those situations is to share the experience that is least, you know, that, that is, exemplifies like diversity and a need for allyship, but is the least injurious to me because what usually happens mm. is somebody, and it is often a white lady picks up on it and starts crying. I can't imagine what it must be like for you. And then this, and then I had a friend and they didn't even let her adopt a dog. And then she's crying because she didn't have a proper place for the dog to be. And I'm like, but she's just oh the secretary. And so how, and so all of this, and it's like, okay, oh. so now I have to go and I'm not a bad, and it always ends with, and I'm not a bad person. Right. It, am I a bad oh. person? And then you have to tell the person, no, you're not a bad person. And, you know, I'm really sorry about your friend and her dog and like not getting the dog because she's not in a big enough. She doesn't have a yard for the dog. And this is an actual story. She didn't have a yard who I don't know and who's not here. And exactly what you're saying, Tammy, you're it's also like, wow. So now I'm consoling you over your imaginary or not imaginary friend offering condolences for that friend. <laughs> And it really actually <laughs> yeah. started with me talking about me and us. So, and I think it's because people are really figuring out how to be empathetic. And I don't think people know how mm -hmm. to exhibit empathy. Okay. So my daughter's going to tell you, I am guilty of this dysfunctional way of empathizing. Um, and again, I don't know if it is a product of my whiteness or if it's just a product of having grown up in a pretty dysfunctional family. And as, as also somebody who's like deeply empathetic, what goes through my mind, um, is I'm trying to put myself in the other person's shoes and how I relate that is through my own experiences. And I'm learning that the way I'm expressing it sometimes is not helpful. Um, 
And it's something I didn't realize I was doing. And thank goodness for my extremely in tune and bold daughter who's like, mom, you're doing it. <laughs> um, and, and it's, and it's something I am actively working on in therapy. <laughs> um, and, and I, and I'm realizing that this is, um, I mean, it's a problem. And again, I don't know if it's a product of whiteness or not, but I'm a white woman who does it. And I, uh, I have to be aware of how I'm interacting with, with other people and how I am expressing my empathy because that's, that's what it is. And it's just coming out. Well, if it helps, it's the flip side. Mm-hmm. And I and I love that you learned this from your daughter and in the process of moving through therapy with her, because in the mm-hmm. process of moving mm-hmm. through therapy with my kids um, and particularly my 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 um, my daughter. Right. One of the things that I learned and so to the flip side of what you're talking about, Angela, is that I also tend to project onto other people what they mm-hmm. what must be happening. Right. And mm, this yeah. is how it must be, you know, and it's how bad it must be for you, how good it must be for you or how mm. you're misunderstood. And I tend to my daughter's like you narrate everybody's you're narrating my experience for me. And I don't need you to narrate this for me. I don't need you mm. to fill in because I'm pausing and I'm crying. Right. And she'll cry. And I go, I know this must be really difficult for you. And I know that this is going mm-hmm. on and I want you to know, and I think I'd be empathetic. And she's like, you're not, you're crowding me and you're mm-hmm. crowding my thoughts. Mm-hmm. You're crowding my emotions. And now you have now decided to construct what they mean. I get to say what they mean. And for me, yeah. that's a, that to me is also a gift. And it's also to me a, a, a point on how to be an ally, right? Because I think we want to right. lean in and we want to, we, we are so uncomfortable. And I don't know if this is an American thing, or, but I think that we are uncomfortable with ugly pain. Pain is ugly and yes. it's messy. Yes. And yes. we're taught that we need to clean it up for the person because it'll make them feel better. And my daughter's like, no, don't do that. Don't stop talking right now yeah yeah and when i when i hear you explain that i i really appreciate it because i know there are times that that i have done that too but it relates back to something that tammy was saying earlier about um how people were uncomfortable with her pain or at least that's what she she perceived that people were uncomfortable with her pain after sujeev's loss and the thing that popped into my mind in this discussion about race is that I think some white people may be uncomfortable with a black expression of pain mm. because it reveals their privilege. You become yeah. aware, yeah. You, you become aware of, I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to worry about whether or not the police are going to kill my white child that's something that does not enter into the discussion or into your thought process unless there's some other factor like a mental health disability 
or you know other factor that would um, put them at greater risk. Uh, and let me ask you this: both of you, if you if mm-hmm. something were to happen with your kids, do you feel like you have the ability? You would be vindicated, right? Like it would look like, and people would say, "This is wrong." <laughs> And people were going back again to the white lady tears that people were rushing <laughs> to try to rescue or defend. I'm just curious. I don't know. Mm. It depends. It, de- it depends on what what it is. Um, I have no no confidence in how um, society and or police would treat my daughter in a sexual violence. Uh, crime. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was something else, like she uh, she was in a car accident, or she was um, a victim of some other crime, like maybe a property crime. But if it was something that was, you know, that that has all the gendered uh, social crap around it. No, I, I don't have that confidence. If it was something else or if it was something that happened to me, mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 I know that I would, that, that I would be protected. And I, and, and I know this also because I grew up with a brother who was in trouble with the cops all the time, all the time. And never, ever once did I feel that I couldn't call the police because I called the police on him. And yeah. I never feared for my life in my own home or my own neighborhood. Yeah. You know? I think that's, that's a really good point because I know for myself, until I had a son with serious mental illness, I would have always felt calling the police would make me safer, not less safe. And for myself and my other son, who's t- neurotypical, um, I would always still feel I can call the police and they would protect us. The only case, and this actually happened, as you both know, a few years ago, um, my son eloped from school and he was not mentally well. And I couldn't find him for over two hours in the Iowa winter. And every 15 minutes, I kept going, I should call the police. I should call the police. And I kept saying, no, if they find him first, he might get shot. Um, so that's the, and he's white. And all I could think of is what if Sujeev and I were able to have children like we had hoped they would have had brown skin and how that scenario would have been even more frightening with the intersection of disability and brown skin. But um, as a white woman, that's the first time I've ever been afraid to call the police because I know that they don't always have the best training for dealing with people with developmental dis- dis- differences or with um, mental health differences mental health um, disability because of communication and different um, responses to stimuli. And normalization. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's yeah. face it. And the, I mean, we're not the first people and I'm not the first person to say this in police training. They're looking for, I mean, normality, right. And normality in terms of skin color is white, right. And normality in terms yeah. of behavior yeah. is neurotypical, Right. And yeah. in terms of gait, even like gait and walking, um, you know, walking with a limp is something that in many police training scenarios, they're they're trained to look at that with suspicion. Um, 
and and to lean into that more. Whereas we both we all know that many people for many different reasons walk with a limp, but it's not normal um, in how they're trained. And so you're absolutely right. It just it heightens. I mean, this is why my husband and I really when it comes to middle school, because of my son's ADHD and it's it's not considered to be the most severe form of ADHD, but he definitely is not a mild form of ADHD, right? And part of what happens with him when he gets panicky um, and his impulses go, his impulse is to run. It's just a bolt. And we worry about sending him for the same reasons, especially after talking to you, Tammy, to middle school, because we know that right now he's elementary school aged and he's still in that bubble in which particularly white people think that little black boys are cute and they're innocuous. And even that has its limits. Right. Um, But as he grows and he grows into that that mid stage of middle school and, and those impulses, he's still trying to learn how to rein those impulses in. Um, it could be deadly. So, and that's even when they know you have a child and there is a Absolutely. person who has a mental um, yeah. or physical disability. Yeah. Actually, that brings up a good point, Dion, because I've actually, in my own life, and this tells you as a white woman how safe I feel around police as a white person, because I've made it a point to make sure the police know my son and know his conditions. Mm-hmm. And that I record that, that if 911 is called from my home, they immediately get flagged what's going on. Right. Um, where other people, you know, I, I don't know. I'm asking might feel like that just makes them more of a target. I don't know if they maybe have other intersecting issues. I feel like it. I mean, we've had this, this discussion um, many a time in our own home and and the context really depends on who's involved because the the problem with bringing that to the forefront is that there are a lot of legitimate reasons that people are angry and people are upset and people react a certain way um and what our worry is by highlighting this then everything falls into the fact that not only is he black but he's black with a mental illness and so then you wind up poo-pooing and sweeping under a lot of things that are legitimately you know abusive or traumatizing like and you both know this what happened to to my baby when he was just in second grade and he had yeah. the 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 fidget sh- not the fidget spinner but his school counselor gave him a, a a piece of string that she tied knots like a meditation string and she's like when you start feeling fidgety and you start feeling anxious i want you to just pull this out right and count the knots and so he was doing this in in class and his teacher at the time was not on board she did not think she said all of the things that he was doing, his disruptions, his, you know, his um, tics, which also come with the self-regulatory tics with ADHD, were manipulative and disruptive. And she really wanted him out of the classroom and out of the school. So when he pulled the string out and he was playing with it, she took it from him. And he said, but that's the string 
that the counselor gave me at the office to help me and I need help. And she said, no, it's it's a distraction. And he took it back (laughs) and she said, now you give it to me now. And so he tossed it at her and he said, fine. And he went to the office. And one of the other second grade teachers told him, if you come to my classroom and you act like that, I am going to call the police and they're going to come to your house and they're going to take you away. And he melted down and he had a meltdown that he is still recovering from these moments. She implanted in him. He already was aware of the problems of the police. Right. And I'm going to tell them why. And they're going to take you away. And so now for him, he has an intense fear that because of his mental health challenges, that someday the police are going to come to our house and remove him from us. So it does work both ways. And, and, and it works with black people when the, when the site of the trauma is the institutions themselves, then the institutions don't offer us the same, and even our babies, the same semblance of protection. And and they don't. And every, you know, my son has had similar experiences in in grade school, um, all the way through high school, where he is either seen as a threat or that, you know, because he's got dyslexia and ADHD, that the way that he's able to communicate is either he's lying, he's cheating, um, or, or, or however you want to, however it's been framed in a negative way where the exact same behavior in, in his white peers is, is okay and it's understood. And you asked me earlier um, about how I, if I feel protected as a white woman um, around the police. And as you guys were talking, the story that we had, that I had shared with y'all the other day about the first time my family experienced our son um, fitting the description. Um, hmm. Sorry, this is going to take yeah. a minute here. Um, no, take your time. Be, be, because what happens was, and what happened is super traumatic. And this happened probably um, 10 years ago now, almost. Yeah, about 10 years ago. Um, we had, uh, it was around Christmas time. We as a family, my husband, my daughter, myself, and our son, uh we're just uh, leaving the movie theater after watching A Christmas Carol. And we're walking from the movie theater and trying to head into the indoor part of the mall because it was cold outside. <laughs> and my son had his his hoodie up and his head down. And he was wearing, you know, the Chicago attire, a bull sweatshirt and a bull snapback cap. And, you know, because we just moved from Chicago to North Carolina. And out of nowhere, with no warning whatsoever, my son is surrounded by at least six cops. And 
you can't even imagine. I could not have previously imagined what that was going to feel like. And it was terrifying. They start questioning him about where he's been and what he's been doing. And my mama bear instincts kicked in. And I put myself between him and the police, like put my arm out and, you know, it was kind of like putting him behind me. And I said, and this is my son, because people don't think that he's with us mm -hmm. or with me. And I said, we were just in the movie theater, officer. My son has been by my side this entire time. Here are our movie tickets. And by the way, what the hell is he accused of doing? And the officer says, a woman reported a man fitting this description, making menacing moves. And y'all can't see me, but I'm putting quote marks around menacing moves. And my feeling was, I, I know that my face was like a hard eye roll. And, he, and I said, you have got to be fucking kidding me. And I grabbed my son's hand and we walked away. Because that was the most a ridiculous thing. Menacing moves. You need six cops to come and surround a child because he was only entering his sophomore year of high school Ugh. for menacing moves. What the hell is menacing moves? But in that moment, without anybody telling me, I knew that my white body as a white woman between him and the police was his shield. Wow. If I was a black mother, you all know that story would have ended differently. And it shook us to our core. And my son took his 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 uh, bulls cap off. I think he even threw it in the garbage, but I can't remember. And we got into the minivan and he went into that that back like couch seat and laid down flat so he could not be seen. That's so because crazy. he fit the description. So. So, yeah, um, that's painful. I'm still a little salty about that. It is. It's and so that painful. like will traumatize you forever. And that's happened. And that that's one instance. We could have a whole whole discussion for a very long time about all the others. It's the indoctrination. In it's, it's your first moment and it's terrifying and it's terrifying as a son. I know this because, you know, my son is nearing 17 and his instinct mm. as a male is to be protective of his mother and to yes. to be instead, if his father is not around, the provider and the protector. So all of these things are all coming to a head for him and these moments are, you know, we, you mentioned this a long time ago, Angela, as racism as a form of child abuse. Um, and we also talk as an organization about the whole ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, right? That fail to include institutions and institutions, what mm -hmm. the police do 
and what the police did with your son and experiences that my child has had are not only aces in the biggest sense of the word aces, but they're also by part and parcel of just the way in which it changes black children. My kids, your son, especially from that moment on, in the flush of being a youth, getting ready for college in my family, getting ready for sleepaway camp, getting ready for anything that I have to send my son away from me is always colored and shaped within the context of these institutional actors, teachers who may see them wrong, camp counselors who might read them wrong, and always, always this threat of calling the police. The thing that you said, Tammy, yeah. that white women in particular are taught to call to protect and to complain to. I think this is why you get the 911 calls for bizarre things like a child selling um, water on a sidewalk without a permit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. like the police right. is our, our teachers. And, and we can talk about this another time because I know we're running out of time. Just the experience of even yeah, being yes. a young black child. Right. And being fingered by a little white girl and the teacher. And that's to me was my first experience in which I realized that white girls have disproportionate power with institutional authorities yeah. was when this happened to me in grade school. And this kid stole and the teacher said, who did it? And she's like, she did. And I'm like, I didn't steal the pencils, the colored pencils. I didn't uh -huh, do it. Uh -huh. It wasn't me, but I got fingered and the institutional authority in the form of the teacher cracked down on me. Um, so, yeah. so yeah. And what I want to add in here, Dion, just because and I know we're going to have to do this a lot because there are a lot of acronyms mm -hmm. in our lives yeah, as sure. mothers of children with disabilities. So for our listeners, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. And there's a great deal of research that the more ACEs a child has, there's a rubric to measure them. And the ones that are studied include things like child abuse at the hands of the parents, divorce, having a parent with a mental illness. They don't include having a sibling with a mental illness, which is interesting. So there's a list that they'll, they'll, they'll measure how many you have and studies have shown that those affect the lifelong physical and mental health of individuals. And the point you're bringing up is that those studies have overwhelmingly neglected adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma that's brought about by institutions like schools, police, healthcare systems. So I just want to make sure our listeners understand that Perfect. context which we talk about all the time, but I think it's not necessarily obvious. So we probably should wrap it up um, for today, but you two hit on uh, future conversations. We will surely be talking about the school to prison pipeline mm -hmm. and uh, ACEs, uh, uh, institutional ACEs, uh, much more in the future. But are there any last things you'd like to say before we wrap it up today? I would like to say that in this moment in which we are all grieving, um, and we're all grieving in different ways that we particularly those of us who have privilege to be in continue to have our jobs. Um, we have privilege to actually be in relatively safe spaces at home. 
we can socially distance, that we not only uplift those who are not sharing in these privileges, but that we seek out and we find out ways, even if it's just as small as giving $20 to, you know, Ajahn Poo and Domestic Workers Alliance or, uh, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, Movement for Black Lives, anything that we can do to help uplift and bring attention to these moments and also uplift organizations that are really trying hard to bring us together and work on behalf of people who don't have the same privileges that we share um, is needed right now. Absolutely. All of that and um, try and be kind with yourself. with with the with the grieving and the anger and all of the soup of emotions right now um try to be kind to other people um i know that that i'm struggling with that at the moment with with certain instances um and you know as as white women of privilege who maybe feel uncertain, don't know what to say, don't know what to do, don't know how to be a good ally. There are a lot of resources for that and a lot of really good books. And if you could pick up one, it might be White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo and start there. Um, but, you know, start learning and and, and being open to uh, some uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, ladies. Um, I, I just like to second that as a white person in this moment, I think each of us has to each day wake up and say, what anti-racist work am I doing today in my life? Mm. Whether it's donating to a bailout fund, right, for black mothers, whether it's educating yourself, whether it's having these conversations, an intentional um, friendships, right? Where we get brave with each other and share. I think every day, each of us has to do the work. It's not enough to say you're not racist. Um, mm-hmm. quite honestly, that's a bit of bullshit mm-hmm. at this point. Um, we all have to actively be working on these issues. Um, including you guys know me. I get into my legislative advocacy mode, but what's going on in your state legislature that's relevant relevant to this contact you know um your legislators what's going on at your city level at your county level um be involved don't just say people should do um mostly i just want to thank you to women who um always lift me up and um thank you for your wonderful uh conversation today and friendship are welcome and thank you guys goes without saying you guys are awesome and i could not get through this without my friends yeah thank you for listening to mothers on the front line copyrighted in 2020 the music is old english written and performed by flame emoji For more podcasts related to children's mental health justice, go to mothersonthefrontline.com or subscribe to Mothers on the Frontline on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
If you'd like to support our work, please make a tax-deductible donation on our website.